0: What do you need right now, this week, this month, today, this last week, this coming week? What do you need? Maybe money. Maybe maybe just one amount, an extra $100. An extra $100 would, would take care of those expenses you had this month for a doctor or the kids, the pet, the car, or whatever. Or maybe... maybe Maybe $1,000, just, just $1,000 once would take care of things. Or maybe it's not just a, a one-time thing. Maybe you just need a little bit more each month. Maybe, maybe an additional $100 each month or maybe an additional $1,000 each month would, would take care of a lot of the, the expenses that keep coming up and would allow you to not be so stressed out uh, and, 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 and to worry so much when you, when you go to buy the things that you need. Or maybe it's time. It's not money, maybe you need time. Right? Maybe you have so many demands coming at your life from every which direction that you just need a little bit of time. Like money maybe just a one a one time rest. Maybe you maybe you just need a couple of free hours. And a couple of free hours you could get everything done that's just been backing up that you need to do. Or maybe maybe that wouldn't be enough, maybe a, a whole extra day off. You could add an eighth day to next week. You could get everything done, and then you could feel good about things. Or, or maybe you need more than that. Maybe a whole weekend, maybe a whole week. Or maybe you just need more time in general. Right? Maybe if you could sleep six hours instead of seven, or five hours instead of six, you could get everything done that you need to do. Or maybe you don't need more time to do things. Maybe you need more time to rest. Right? You've got demands coming at you from every which direction, and you're exhausted. I'm sure, I know there are mothers in here, so I'm sure that that's, uh, that's some of you who need that. Maybe just an hour. If you could sleep for an hour, if you could rest for an hour, that would do it. Or maybe you just need one day to sleep in, maybe one weekend, maybe if you could just sleep it all. Um, maybe you need six hours instead of five. Or seven hours instead of six. Maybe that's what you need, and that would do it. Or maybe you just need to get organized. There's so much clutter with all that's going on in your life right now. If you could just sit down, organize it, get everything straightened out, you could more effectively tend to the things that you need. Or kids, maybe there's a toy that you need. Maybe your parents promised you they would give it to you. Or maybe they told you you can't have it. Maybe you need something that everyone your age has is. The right clothes, the right makeup, the right under armor, the right shoes. (laughs) Maybe you need a spouse. I know that Baylor's down the road, so maybe you need a spouse. And, And maybe having a spouse would make life just better. You would have someone to consider what you're doing with you, and you would have someone to consider when you make your plans. And since Baylor's just down the road, maybe you need a job. (laughs) Whether or not you're a Baylor student, maybe you need a job. And there's really not much more I can say about that other than the fact that you need a job. (laughs) Maybe you need a, a house. Maybe you need a car. Maybe you need to sell a house. Maybe you need to sell a car. There's a lot of things that you probably need. If you're anything like me, it's not hard for something to come to mind. When you hear the word need. If you're anything like me, throughout the whole course of this week, you've, you've been thinking continually about things you need. If you're anything like me, you may have already been thinking about things you need before I began speaking. And if you're anything like me, you'll probably begin to think about those things during this sermon and through the rest of the service. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our passage this morning and actually next week as well is Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. It's printed in your bulletin and it is also on page 871 of your Pew Bible. So hear the word of God. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a smaller thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Please be seated. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we are a needy people, and often we act as if you don't know that. But as Pete prayed and as Pete read from your word, you've made it very clear that you know that. You have provided what we need most, yet we remain unconvinced that you are out for our good. We pray that you would use your Holy Spirit to persuade us of this this morning. You have given us your church, your word, your sacraments, and most greatly you have given us your Son, Jesus. We pray that our hearts would have ears to hear that, would have eyes to see that, and in beholding that, that we would worship you, that we would be changed to be more like Christ, and that we would extend your kingdom and supremacy to those around us, to this city, and to the rest of the world beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. A roommate of mine uh, a few years ago, I guess some of you probably will figure out who it is. I tend to have roommates that get married and move in with their wives. So it could be any number of, of, of them. But one roommate and I uh, had an ongoing joke, which started when he was really busy with work, he was studying to, to take a professional certification exam, and he was just really busy. And in passing, and casually one day he just said, after, after this test is over, life will be better. And, and, I, and I responded and, and kept telling him that, he kept saying, man, after this test is over, life will be better. And then once the test was over, it was his girlfriend who was working out of state. Man, once she gets back, life will be better. And then once she got back, it was, once, he was once, he, once they got engaged. Man, once you're engaged, life will be better. And then after that, it was once you're married, and by that point, we had kind of added more things to it, like, and you won't have any problems. Man, once you get married life will be better. And you won't have any problems. (laughs) Ever. And he's married now, and I've heard him say, when we still joke about that, that life is better. But uh, I think we've even joked a couple of times that, man, once you have kids, life will be better. (laughs) Now, I think that this joke is an illustration that gives us an example of, of how our hearts are In regards and relationship to our desires and our needs. How we are hopeful, so hopeful about how life will be whenever one need or one desire is fulfilled. How we're so hopeful that everything will be okay once we get whatever that is that we need. And I think that this passage in Luke's Gospel shows us a a couple of things about our heart condition, the heart condition that is behind so much of our sin as it pertains to our needs and desires. So I think this passage shows us a couple of things. First, I think it shows us that hoping for things and not considering these things in relationship to God, with reference to God, is idolatry. It shows us the reason for this idolatry. In verse 28, where Jesus says you of little faith. And it gives us a solution for this idolatry, exhorting us to faith in our Father who is good and wise and who provides for our needs. But along the way, we're going to need to consider how we understand desires and needs in relationship to life and in relationship to our Father. So first I want to look at both sections of these passages which of this passage, which are, are divided with, with headings in your Bible, most likely. Um, I'm not sure if they are in the bulletin or not, but the f- there, are, there are two passages here, and they more or less run parallel. In each passage, we see a man who has a tendency to hope in things other than God, which is idolatry. A man who's hopeful, whose hope is placed in something that isn't God. A man who misunderstands and misprioritizes life. And a man who thinks, uh, and, and, and ultimately we, we, we get a warning and an exhortation that life is more than these things. And let me go ahead and, and say in the, f- the first section, there is actually a man. In the second section, it's Jesus giving a warning. But I'll, I'll, I'll speak of that as if there is a specific man in mind, because it would just take a lot of words to always refer to uh, the nature of that warning. So in this first section, verses 13 to 21, we see something that is spoken to the rich that's spoken to the man with abundance. It starts with a warning before we get into the parable about the rich fool. And the warning is against covetousness. And depending on how you understand the word covetousness, that may or may not be the best term for the warning. What this warning is, is a warning against a vice characterized by the desire to have more in a way that's greedy and insatiable a vice of wanting more and more and more. So this man, after the man in the parable, after we, after we get this warning, is a man who places his hope in his barns. And I mean that literally and figuratively. He, in fact, puts his grain in his barns. And that's what he is hoping in. He's doing this in order to achieve his ultimate desire, which we see in verse 19. When he says to himself, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, or actually, that's the end of verse 19. Um, So, his desire is for rest. His desire is to retire. His desire is to eat, drink, and be merry. And we see his plan to achieve these in verse 18 when he says, I will tear down my barns and I will build new ones. So it's easy, especially in the context of this passage, to see how wrong this man is. First, before we get the man in the parable, we get this warning against greed. Jesus seems to be talking to the man who brings up the whole scenario uh, in a way of of condemnation. If you look at it in the context of what's going on in Luke's gospel, uh, this man comes out of the crowd, asks Jesus to tell his brother to divide their inheritance, More or less, he's saying, Jesus, tell my brother to give me some of the money. Tell my brother to give me some of our property. He's not asking for a division that would actually risk him losing anything. He's looking for gain. And in light of the fact that Jesus has been healing the sick, casting out demons, and raising the dead, this man's request seems very petty and very selfish. So we get that, we get the warning, and then we get, in the actual parable, the rich man whom God directly calls a fool. So I don't think anyone doubts that this man isn't in the wrong. But I want to point out that some of his basic goals, some of the things that he's doing in the most basic sense are okay. It's his heart's disposition and desire and his understanding of life that is bad. Desiring abundant crops and storing them is not inherently bad. It gets bad at the point where this man says, soul. We get the idea that this man sees his life and these crops, sees his life and his abundance. Now, the, I'll mention this later, but when he says soul, it's the same word that is used in the second half of our passage for life when Jesus says, life is more than these things. So it's getting at something a deeper idea of life than just the blood pumping through your veins. So when he says soul, as he's making his plans, and he foresees himself telling his soul that he can rest, that's where he goes wrong. He's misunderstanding life, placing his life in his barns, and he's misordering his life, seeing that which is in his barns as being what will give him life. Let me add to this to just say, in James four thirteen and 16, we see the attitude that this man should have. Um, and, and we also see that his basic goals of having a good crop, of storing it, are not bad. That it is, in fact, an issue with his heart. James four thirteen and 16 says, "'Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring.' What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, "If the Lord, li- if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that." So the man in this first half of our passage is being idolatrous in that he is hoping for abundance and storing it without the attitude of James four thirteen. If the Lord wills, he's storing it and putting his hope in this thing putting his hope in his abundance rather than putting his hope in God. One commentator puts it well, saying that this man is desiring something without reference to God, and as a result, he's desiring something above God. This man sees and understands his life apart from God. After the warning, we see, uh, after the warning but before the parable, We see the exhortation that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And we see a man who has misprioritized and misunderstood his life. Now, in the second half of this passage, which is, I think, often titled, Do Not Be Anxious, we see a number of parallels again. But this time, rather than Jesus speaking to the man with the abundance, he seems to be speaking to everyone else. In fact, he specifically addresses his disciples, an audience who he seems to think is prone to worry. We see in verse 22, And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Jesus knows that their becoming apostles will not bring in a big check. So, He's warning them against placing their hope in food and clothing. In other words, their basic needs. So in the first half of the passage, we see a man who places his hope in his abundance. In the second half of the passage, we see a warning against being a man who places his hope in his most basic needs. And again, the basic goal here, wanting to have food, wanting to have clothing, isn't bad. It's the disposition of the heart and a misprioritization of life that is bad. Desiring to have your needs fulfilled is not inherently bad. So don't quit your job tomorrow. Don't cash out your savings. Those things are not inherently bad. It's the condition of the man's heart that Jesus warns against being that is bad. And in this passage, we also see idolatry again. There was idolatry in the first half and idolatry here. The man Jesus is warning against becoming is a man who hopes for his needs to be met without reference to God. He's anxious, and he's anxious in a way that he sees his life and these basic needs. To him, life is food and clothing. The warning is against being focused on needs rather than focusing on God who provides for those needs. We see that a reference to life again in the first Part of the passage, it was before the parable. Now, partway through the warning, Jesus says, life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Again, the same word in Greek that the man uses when he says, and I will say to my soul, soul. So this isn't just biological life. It's not just blood pumping. It's life. It's what life really is. And another commentator puts this quite well, saying, That this idolatry is a reversal of the created order. So like pretty much all idolatry, rather than serving God, the creature that Jesus is warning against being is serving creation. A creature serving creation rather than his creator. So, a number of parallels in each of these two parts of this passage. We see someone with hope. We see someone with hope in something other than God we see someone, or at least a warning against life being misunderstood, life being understood in either abundance or basic needs, and that's, in fact, a misprioritizing of life. Nothing wrong with those basic needs. In fact, nothing necessarily wrong with abundance. But when those are put on top of of, of however you conceive of life, um, then that is indicative of a heart, that has disordered desires and misunderstands needs and desires. And then we see as well that this is what the world does. This is what the nations do. So ultimately, this concept of life that I'm going to be getting at is something that the world isn't going to understand. right? If we look in the news, if we look at what the world does to try to save life, to try to help life, It is with all the things that Jesus is warning about. It's with abundance. It's with crops. It's with basic needs. It's with food and clothing. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned to provide those. There's no doubt if you read the Gospels that we should be concerned for the poor, that we should be concerned for their food, for their clothing, for their basic needs. But getting food, clothing, and basic needs to some part of the world or another is not giving that part of the world life in the sense that Jesus speaks here. So then in verse 28, we see the reason for this idolatry where Jesus says, But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So that implies that this warning or that this person who puts his hope in things other than God is doing so because he does not have faith in God or at least does not have enough to believe in who God really is. And then we see a solution that our faith is in our Father and we see how our faith should look in verses 30 and 31 where Jesus says, For all the nations of the world seek after these things and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So in sum, have faith in your Father, seek his kingdom, and the things that you need, food, clothing, will be added to you. So is it this simple? God knows your needs, have faith in him, seek his kingdom, not things, and you will have what you need, namely food and clothing. Is it this simple? What about Christians who suffer around the world? Do persecuted Christians in other countries, do their lives testify against Luke's passage? Now, I doubt that any of us in here, maybe maybe, maybe a few, but I doubt that many of us have ever been in, in, in anxiety over whether or not we'll have food our next meal, or whether or not we'll have clothes tomorrow. But I think we do have a little bit of a grasp on our needs and what we need. So what about our unanswered prayers? Do our unanswered prayers testify against Luke's passage and against what Jesus is saying? Even more difficult, what about lament and complaint psalms? Like Psalm 44 where a psalmist writes, Our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. And finally, what seems like it might be the most difficult uh, is what about Paul? What about Paul, who in summarizing his life, speaks of his suffering in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 27, and says, concluding his list of suffering that he has been in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. If anyone had faith in God our Father, and if anyone sought the kingdom, it's Paul. Yet Paul says that he was without food and implies that he was without clothing. The two things that Jesus explicitly mentions here. So we seem to have a problem Jesus promises food and clothing to the one who seeks the kingdom. Jesus promises your needs will be met to the one who seeks the kingdom. And Paul, who sought the kingdom, was without food and was without clothing. I think to understand this passage rightly, we need to consider a few things. We need to consider how we understand needs and desires in relationship to life And we need to consider how we should understand needs and desires in relationship to our Father. What came to mind when I asked, what do you need? I'm sure that many of you thought of legitimate needs. Maybe you thought of just basic necessities, right? That's a term we use, and and, and that's what Jesus seems to be speaking of in this passage, right? Food, drink, drink. Clothing, maybe throw in shelter, and those are those are the basic necessities. Maybe you thought of other things that are still legitimate needs aside from basic necessities. But let me point out, we do we do definitely misconstrue and conflate needs and desires in our society today. Right? I need a cup of coffee. I need that shirt. I need and fill in the blank. But nonetheless, we do have legitimate needs. We misprioritize our needs today, and I think though a broad example, our society's credit card debt problem uh, testifies to that, right? That we put some things that are less necessary above other things that are more necessary. I think that's part of the condition of our hearts. But we do have legitimate needs. There are people in the nursery right now, at least I assume, and I'm sure all you parents assume even more, (laughs) because humans have needs, especially infants. This is morose, but Emperor Frederick II, a 13th century king of Germany, is chronicled to have tried an experiment in which he isolated infants, giving them only a nurse, commanding her not to speak to them in order to see what language they would naturally speak. His chronicler says that the experiment was unsuccessful because all of the infants died. Now, this experiment is insane not just because of the end result, but because any rational human being should know what the end result would be. Anyone who's ever been around an infant knows that human ha- humans have needs. And this really, it doesn't end in infancy. Adults still have needs of friends, of rest and nourishment. There's a reason that people go to jail for holding slaves or something like that for forbidding people from food, for forbidding people from clothing. Um, there are basic needs, and it's just to punish somebody who takes those away from someone else. But some, And sometimes we don't know exactly what we need. It's just difficult to know if there's something we really need. If you've ever tried to make a budget, you've experienced that when you're in the store and you see something and you're asking yourself, well, do I really need that? And ultimately, if you're me, you, you probably justify that you do need it. But since it's difficult to know what we need, I, I want to I wanna take a, a brief moment to look at three types of desire that we have. We can desire sinful things, things that are just sinful if they, if they come into reality. We can desire neutral things, things that are neither bad nor good inherently. And we can desire good things, things that are, in fact, good. If you desire to steal or you desire another man's wife, that is a sinful thing and a sinful desire, in fact. Yet, if you desire a new car, more free time, or a new job, that's a neutral desire. It's it's, it's not inherently good. It's not inherently bad. Or if you desire to build a family, to, to share the gospel with someone you know, or to go into gospel ministry... That is well, or that is, in fact, a good desire. If those things happen, it's good. I don't need to say much about the first one, but let's look at the latter two for a second. Even those neutral, or even the good desires, we can pervert and turn them into bad desires. If I desire a raise, something neutral, fine. I may, I may need the raise. I may deserve the raise, and I may have some very good intentions of how I could serve the church with that raise. Yet, if I desire that raise to the extent that I think that I must have it, that I cannot conceive of life without it, then that is a desire that wasn't good or bad that is turned sinful. And even we do the same with good desires. If I desire a family to have a wife and children, that's great, The Bible even says that it's a good thing. Yet if I desire that without reference to God, like we saw in these two parts of our passage, if I desire it in a way that I think I must have it whether or not it is God's will that I have that, then that's a desire turned sinful. If I desire it in a way that I cannot conceive of life without that, without a family, then that is a good desire turned sinful. I think our prayers are a very good indicator of how we think of our needs and desires. If you do not desire for God's will to be done, as we saw in James chapter 4, if you do not desire for God's will to be done over your desire for the fulfillment of your petition, then you are making an idol out of your desire. Let me say that again. If you do not desire for God's will to be done over your desire for the fulfillment of your petition, you are making an idol out of whatever you desire. If you get this idea, this sense of anxiety and this sense of angst and frustration, when you consider the thought that God just may not, will, it may not be in God's design for you to have whatever it is you're praying for, then you're making an idol out of that desire. So hopefully this example, this, this, this description of our desires, helps to shed light on this passage. We make our needs into idols we make our desires into idols we really do this i do this you do this we do have needs yet we must prioritize them rightly think carefully about how we desire these needs even food can we conceive jesus says that life is more than food and clothing can we conceive of life without food and without clothing Frankly, I don't know that I can. If you told me I would not have food for the next week, the next month, I would not have clothing for the next week, the next month, the word that would come to my mind is death. Can we conceive of life without food and without clothing? So how should we understand our needs, our desires, and our lives and relationship to our Father? I think Luke's language here is very important to look at. Up until verse 29, Luke, only uses, Luke refers just to God. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. But God said to the man, fool. But in verse 30, when Jesus says, your father knows your needs. Luke uses the term father for the first time. So, it is God who feeds the ravens, it is God who clothes the lilies, but it is our Father who knows our needs. T- Tim Keller, who a lot of you may have heard of, uh, actually expounds and, and explains the Our Father part of the Lord's Prayer magnificently. So you can probably go to his, his website and, and listen to his sermons for a, a more clear and better explanation of, of this idea then I'm about to try to elaborate. But if it is our Father who's caring for our needs, what does that mean? What does it mean that our Father is caring for our needs? A good earthly father will do so much for his child. Now, if, if you didn't have a good earthly father and, and the concept is, just puts a bad taste in your mouth, then know that the Father of whom Jesus speaks in this passage is everything that your earthly father wasn't. If you had a good earthly father, then know that the father that Jesus speaks of in this passage embodies all of the goodness and more that you received from your earthly father. Fathers care for their children. I, 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 have, a, I have a niece now. That's, uh, she's 10 months old. Uh, and I'm only her uncle and when I've babysat for her, I see her, and, I, and I've thought a couple of times of, of what I would do to make sure nothing happened to her. I mean, I, I prob- I'm 25 years old. I'm a teacher. I'm around kids all day. I wouldn't really just go babysit for free for two hours <laughs> for people. <laughs> but I'll do that for my niece. And I'm only her uncle. A father... Will go to great lengths to do things for the good of his children. What about then when it needs when it seems our needs are not fulfilled? Our unanswered prayers, or the bigger the bigger issue, what about Paul? Remember, he was without food, he was without clothing. And he did seek the kingdom. I think to understand this 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 rightly, we, we need to know and we need to understand that children misunderstand their needs. Children misunderstand their needs, and children have misprioritized desires. As I, unfortunately, I don't have ch- children of my own, so I can't use them for an example. I have to use myself as a child, um, but there's no shortage of examples. Uh, as, as, as a child, I lived in Denver, Colorado, and my family went skiing frequently. And I can vividly remember uh, skiing in in, in windy, snowy weather when the snow was blowing horizontally and stinging my face, and I somehow got it in my mind that that was the first sign of avalanche. (laughs) And I remember uh, voicing this concern to my dad and being very dissatisfied with his answer. He said two things. He said, there's not going to be an avalanche, and my thought was, how do you know? And he said, I wouldn't let anything like that happen to you. And I remained dissatisfied, not trusting in his wisdom. Now, if you've you've never skied, or or you don't ski, or you've not really been around snow, um, what my father understood that I didn't was that blowing snow is not the first sign of an avalanche. (laughs) What he understood that I didn't was that you can't possibly have an avalanche on a flat, groomed, heavily controlled ski run of a Colorado ski resort. Yet, I understood that I was not in safety and that I needed safety. I misunderstood my needs, yet my earthly father was wise enough to know that I wasn't in danger. Not only that, he was good enough to make me continue skiing, which I didn't want to do. uh, And and now I'm thankful for that because I love skiing and I had an illustration for you. Uh, Now, children also have disordered desires, Another example of me. When I was six, I sat on the lap of Santa in the mall and asked for something outrageous. I asked for so, something so outrageous that my mother was embarrassed. And in fact, she said she doesn't know if she ever took me back to see Santa in, in, in future years. So I actually... Re- it was so outrageous that I received a handwritten note on Christmas morning. Um, she scanned it from Santa Claus's workshop at the North Pole And I read directly from it to tell you what I asked for. This dated December 24th, 1988. So that's during the savings and loans crisis. (laughs) Dear Thomas, sorry about not being able to give you $2 million. Every Every year I have more and more children to leave things for, and money doesn't go as far as it used to. Now, I don't know what a six-year-old would do with two million. I don't know why a six-year-old would want two million dollars deciding one, 1.5 is not enough, but knowing that three is, is just too much. Um, I, I don't know where I got that in my head, but what I, don't, what I know even less is what a, what a six-year-old would do with two million dollars. Today, much less in 1988. I do know that a six-year-old with two million cash would not develop character, manners, a six year old with two million cash would not be a pleasant person to be around, probably for the rest of his life. That was a desire of mine, something that in some way or another I probably felt that I needed. And it is one that would have ruined me. Now it's easy to see this in the case of of, of children, of, of of humans that are young. But if God is our father, then we are his children. And we do the very same things with him. I think it's important for us to look to verse 24 to be more persuaded of this and to be more persuaded that we are of little faith. Jesus says, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Ravens are unclean in Old Testament law. And in the ancient world, like today, they were just dirty animals that, that nobody was fond of. You people in this city know this very well. You know not to park under a tree. You have an infestation of black birds that are disgusting. They may not be ravens, but whatever they are, they're gross. And in my opinion, they're, they're no different from rats with wings. Um, yet God cares for them. Those birds that you see covering electrical wires, covering parking lots, are not anxious. They're not worrying. They're dirty and they're nasty birds, yet God cares for them. Just like God cares for you. Just like God cared for the chief of sinners, Paul. Paul's needs were fulfilled. Your needs are fulfilled. Jesus tells us this in this passage. Your Father fulfills your needs. So maybe we're not to understand food and clothing in a most literal sense, but to understand them as the things that we need. Because when you consider those in comparison to the man with abundance, those are the things that are truly needed. But when we consider them in relationship to life in general... We need those things, but we must prioritize our needs properly. So what does this mean for you today, tomorrow, and the next day? It means do not be anxious. Your Father knows what you need. Be able to let go of the things that you think you need. In other words, prioritize your needs rightly. This is going to be one of the things that next week when we look at the issue of the kingdom in this passage, that's going to be one of the keys to understanding the kingdom in this passage, I think, is being able to understand our needs and prioritize them rightly in a way that we can let go of the things that we have, even if it is basic necessities. But if you're not anxious, I ask you this, why are you not anxious? Are you not anxious because you are trusting in your Father in Heaven to provide? Are you not anxious because you've lived such a comfortable life that things have always just come through for you? And that while you may pray, you're really just trusting and putting your hope in the fact that things have always worked out. They've always worked out before, they'll always worked out, they'll always work out now, so you have nothing to be anxious about. If this is you, then I exhort you, don't put your hope and the comforts you've had Don't take pleasure in those comforts. Instead, put your hope and take pleasure in the Father who has given you those comforts. And like Jesus, I exhort you to be prepared to trust in him and not be anxious when suffering comes. Yet we differ from the ravens in one very important respect. For the ravens, life does consist in food. For us, it does not. Jesus says this in John's Gospel, in chapter 17, when he says, Life consists in knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. If we are fed and clothed, but we don't know God and Jesus Christ whom he he has sent, we do not have life. We must understand that there is an order to life. That that is what is most important in life, and all things must submit to that. Anything that doesn't submit to that is, in fact, an idol. Psalm 84, verses 11 to 12, tells us that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you, or happiness, or happy is the one who trusts in you. If we understand life to consist in knowing God and Jesus Christ in whom he has sent, if that is our chief desire then we are blessed and happy. Then, in fact, all our desires are fulfilled. And I think that this is how Paul can say that all his needs were met. That when he was naked, when he was hungry, he was not in contradiction to Luke's passage. That God was meeting his needs. And this is exactly how we can understand the, the often quoted passage in Philippians 4, verses 11 to 13, when he says... Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul beheld Christ on the road to, Dis- on the road to Damascus, and in beholding Christ. Christ became his chief desire. And in that, Paul had everything that he desired. Now, no doubt, Paul had other needs. He, he did need food and clothing if, he, if his body was, was going to keep on functioning and, and staying alive. But his most important need was met. So this sermon, nor this passage, is telling you to, to learn how to just deny all your desires Um, to wear sackcloth and ashes, shave your head, and uh, desire nothing. It's telling you to prioritize your desires, to understand that life consists in knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. If we see how good God is, we will desire him above all things, and we will desire him rightly. So I want to close asking how good is he? I think for this, we need to look to verse 32, which just may be one of the keys to this passage. It's in verse 32 that Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So, if the illustrations of the ravens and the lilies are not enough for you to trust in your Father if the examples I've given of how children don't trust, of how God has provided for Paul's needs because Paul's chief desire was Jesus Christ himself, if those don't do it for you, then these words should. Fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock. Yes, we're sheep. We're sheep with a good shepherd a good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. John's Gospel tells us that Jesus is this good shepherd. This, brothers and sisters, is Luke's greatest proof. If the Father will give away his Son for us, if the good shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep, if the good shepherd trusts his Father enough to take on flesh, to take our sin upon him to his death and trust his father enough that, to know that his father will raise him from the dead and give him the kingdom. If our father will do this, then it's foolish and silly for us to think that he will not give us simple things and that he is not out for our good. So this is Luke's greatest proof. Do not be anxious. And your basis for not being anxious for not finding life in your abundance and not finding life in your basic needs is, because, is that you have a good shepherd who has laid down his life for you. God has not withheld that, nor will he withhold any other good thing, just like the psalmist says. Let us pray. Father, you have given us the kingdom. You have given us the kingdom by giving over the life of your Son on our behalf. He is righteous enough that he has attained the kingdom, and that's what you give us. And that is so good. Forgive us, O God, that we do not understand this. Forgive us that we are in such great doubt so often of your goodness. Teach us to trust in your goodness and wisdom. O Father, you are wise, and you know what we need, and you are good. And you give us what we need. While it may not be, Father, what we desire, while it may not be, Father, what we want most, it is good. So, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict our hearts of our our idolatry, but that you would not leave us in the dust, but would lift humble heads to behold Jesus, to behold our Good Shepherd, that we would trust and follow him, that our lives would be changed and made more like his. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen.